A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, welcome to the 363rd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Brian Lorenzo, who is getting a hat. Congrats, Brian. I will be packing it myself. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Adam Lowe. Today we've got Yoko Okamura on the show. She's back. Regular listeners will remember her from uh, a few years ago now, mid-pandemic. But she's got a new film coming out called Unseen. Yeah, and Yoko has directed a ton of stuff. She went to AFI and made a thesis film that won all sorts of awards there. She has directed a bunch of TV, Good Trouble, The Bold Type. She did 50 States of Fright for Sam Raimi. And now she's made a Blumhouse film, mm-hmm. Unseen. That's right. It's available March 7th on digital and on demand. And it's on MGM Plus May 2023. We know that Yoko was recently on another podcast, uh, our friend's podcast, Making Movies is Hard. And we realized there's maybe some overlap in our listenership. So we decided to really make sure our interview with Yoko is very different from there. So if you heard that one, uh, you'll get all new stuff. We really dive deep into craft, into how she comes up with shot lists, how she approaches where to put her cameras and what the difference is between directing features and directing TV. And she's such a colorful person. She literally has green hair. And we talk about that potentially too much, but I, I really yeah, enjoy it. I believe that Noah's going to trim it down a little bit a little bit for us. Yoko was on episode 264. Oh, wow. So, so kind of a while ago now. 100 episodes ago. Mm-hmm. 99 uh, episodes. And the title of that episode was Success is Not Linear. Nearly 100 episodes later, now she's doing features. So it's it maybe is a little more linear than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the reason she had, uh, we talked about success not being linear. Uh, first of all, we stole that line from her, but she was a hostess at mm-hmm. a restaurant while yeah. she was directing TV. And she really is a great example of how long it takes to make it and how unsure we are as directors <laughs> what the next job is going to be so she kept on she held on to her restaurant job even though she was already getting tv directing gigs just to make sure that she was all set but i'm pretty sure she's she's done with all the restaurant stuff at this point i'm pretty sure she's done with all the restaurant stuff but you know she just eats at them now Mm -hmm. which i do too we have so many things in common It's a really fun, it's a really fun talk though. It's great to catch up with her. Um, and yeah, we, we dig in on, you know, the ins and outs of making something suspenseful, some, something, you know, the film is essentially about um, a phone call between two different people and all of the different ways that she amps up the energy, amps up the excitement, amps up the tension um, with a really cool flavor a tinge of camp of of opera of archetype but keeping it all a thrill a second it's a cool conversation but it's called unseen you can just uh look for the trailer on youtube it's got a really cool high concept premise that i think is really awesome but before we uh talk to yoko i wanted to remind people that we have a patreon page patreon.com slash just shoot it pod it's where you just like Brian Lorenzo can go and give us a dollar, give us $2, give us $20. If you feel like you're getting something out of this podcast for $20, I will personally mail you one of our last just shoot it hats. If Brian didn't get it, Brian if you really want to give me a hard time, you should go get a bunch of hats right now. And then Matt and I will have to figure we will out. We'll be in trouble. Yeah. yeah. Good trouble yeah. though. We'll yeah. Just that's have right. to get more hats. So anyhow, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. It helps us make the show. 
pay to get it edited. Uh, pay our wonderful editor, Noah Bashor and patreon.com slash just unit pod. And now let's hop into our conversation with Yoko Okamura and her film Unseen. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Okay, we are back with Yoko Okamura. Thanks for returning to us. Yes, thank you for having me. I, I love the return guest thing. I always listen to podcasts when they talk about return guests, and I'm like, I want to be one of those someday. Here I am. <laughs> Is this your first return guest? Yeah, guesting? first first return guesting, and I think your podcast was my first podcast ever too so well look at that here yeah love it love it okay cool so but but this time around you've probably been on a lot of podcasts right um i mean a lot you know define a lot but i've been on a few like more than five yeah i I, you i'm curious yeah ballpark you don't have to be specific but like how many how many podcasts does one go on Uh, in in something like this I mean, I did this like round of press now, and I think mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it's sometimes hard to kind of like differentiate. What, wait, was this a podcast or was this a live Instagram or was this? Mm-hmm. A, it all kind of starts to blur together. But I think I've done at least four. So okay, yeah, not yeah. too many. You, it's it's just striking me in this moment that I have no idea what a press tour is like outside of like. A mega junket do you know what i mean like like in film school i would like get 10 minutes with a you know on a red carpet with somebody or you'd see you know the funny intern go in you know interview chris hemsworth or something and they're clearly like at a hilton ballroom just like cycling through or whatever but like when you're not doing that what does a press tour look and feel like is it fun are you enjoying it yeah, this is my first go around at any sort of pressed, you know, anything. And so I this has been an incredibly educational process for me. Um, uh, I got my own, you know, I've hired a publicist for the first time, which mm-hmm, is a brand mm-hmm. new thing that I did a lot of research on. Whether Wait, it was is Camelia your publicist or is she the Blumhouse publicist? Camelia is K, uh, part of KWPR, which is a company that Paramount Blumhouse hired to be, you know, a part mm-hmm. of a part of the infrastructure of, uh, of PR mm-hmm. for the movie. Um, but I also have my personal a publicist and, you know, Midori, the actress also has her own personal publicist. So like, is a lot of people, um, and sure. it's kind of a huge team working on it. And, um, yeah, my first press thing, it's kind of amazing. You kind of get like a little itinerary for every single day and how many people you're talking to, how many minutes they give you the links. It's very mm-hmm. organized. Um, and you know, the first day of press that we did, which was, um, our advanced screening day as well on the second, um, yeah, it was like I think I did twenty interviews um, in like mm-hmm. a five, you know four hour chunk with like ten minutes breaks in between, and um, it was madness. I was like, wow, yeah, I got a taste of it for the first time. 
it, you know, it makes me think of, uh, you know, when you're touring with a film and you're like doing festivals and you're doing panels and things like that, yeah. you can watch. And I remember watching firsthand my wife touring with films. You see anecdotes sort of coalesce and like come together and get punched up almost like a stand-up set you see like totally. oh these anecdotes get a little bit sharper and a little bit funnier you see the laughs or you see what people are reacting to or what they're bored by and yeah. like it's like kind of a, a slow motion tour did that happen in fast motion for you as you're going through this junket like yeah. do you feel like you gave you your you got sharper with your bits and stories or is that not something you're worried about that's so funny. It's like we're, you know, like, uh, working on our type five, right? Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I think, I feel like I've been, we've been paired with really cool creative, like a lot of genre, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. podcasts, a lot of um, people who really do know how to talk about the craft and kind of ask more original questions. So I feel like, yeah, we've repeated a few questions over or, you know, a few answers a little bit over, but I feel like we haven't word for word done exactly the same thing mm -hmm. in, on, on this, mm -hmm. these things. So, um, but yeah, definitely, you know, it's funny. It actually starts to feel like, wait, like the longer you do it, the more you do it, the more you get self-conscious of like, wait, have I already said this to this person uh -huh, already? Sure, sure, it's yeah. more like a brain fog yeah, kind of yeah. situation. It's more than getting tighter. It actually I was gets talking a to a, a person with tattoos and a black t-shirt. Which one was it? <laughs> was that you? And there was a microphone in front of their face. Was yeah, this yeah. the one? Oh, yeah. no. Yeah. yeah. That's why you just never repeat any answer twice. Easy. Yeah. You never. Well, to, to be fair to uh, film festival panelists, you almost always get a few softball questions. It's like, yeah. you know, what was a surprise hardship or what, you know, do you have a funny story? I feel like people end up sort of steering things into you know well-worn territory so that they can they can crush it's like a stand-up on a talk show right yeah you know totally i remember when i was touring going to film festivals with my first feature you know that you do the q a's and sometimes no one would have a question ready you know <laughs> like yeah. sometimes there's moderators and they're there and they're setting you up but sometimes it's like any questions and people are like really quiet and i i went to a lot of festivals and I feel like by the 10th festival, I would be like, any questions? Well, uh, well, you guys come, you know, come up with mm -hmm. something. Like, let me tell you some of the, my favorite yeah. questions I've been asked in the past. That's because so smart. I, I would remember, you know, I remember like the, I, I made this movie with deaf actors and yeah. people, I think maybe were nervous to ask about it or they, they yeah. didn't, it didn't even occur to them that like when you yell cut, if the actor's not facing you, like they can't mm -hmm. cut. So it kind of, th those details were like really fun and it was based on real people and how the real people interacted with our set. They're all everyone that's the movie's based on is still alive and was very much involved in the film. And there's like a yeah. weirdness to that. Um, Got so, it. But yeah, I would try to, to entertain people with the things that I saw worked previously yeah. and try to like not talk about things. <laughs> sure. Like, you know, I love to know what camera you shot on, but like most of the people, in the most crowd, people don't care. Yeah, don't care. Right, yeah. right, right, right. On the topic of promotion and perhaps even branding, Yoko, you have, what I would call a signature color. Your hair is green. You're wearing oh. a green outfit. I, I would I would reckon that most of your apartment is complementary to that shade of green. Yeah, you wouldn't be wrong, yeah. sir. Yep, you, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're looking at behind me. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of there's, a lot, there's of a lot of green. Yeah, yeah. So you have a very clear style and aesthetic that bleeds yeah. into your film. I, you know, I'm I'm even just kind of scrubbing through the, the trailer here. There yeah. is a lot of of green. Of what I would call Yoko Green. Right? Oh my gosh! Yes, Yoko Green. I claim it now. Uh, that's right. Now you know it's a nail polish color. It's a hair dye. You're set to go. But so so, uh, two part question. One: Why brand yourself? Right? Is it purely self expression? You just kind of fell into being memorable. Is there? Is it maybe even a touch more calculated or something that you've embraced in some way? And then also, does that? affect the way like executives and producers expectations of your filmmaking style so the first or do one, you just like green okay well <laughs> i will say the origins of this purely is that i just love this color like truly yeah. sincerely i've always loved it like growing up you know kind of like the disney villain neon green right like mm -hmm, the fire mm -hmm. of like mufasa's mm -hmm. fire and like the eyes of yes. the maleficent i just was always drawn to that it just felt like a magical color it just like stuck out out of besides anything else you know 
So that always, even as like a kid watching those, you know, animated movies, just it always captivated and I just always loved it. Um, and there's a magic to how those colors are used in those movies. And I, sure. you know, and it actually kind of stepping back now as an adult who's a filmmaker uh, who likes to make dark stories that has like a t- like a flare of you know neon in it it kind of really makes sense that that's sort of the origin of where i started to fall in love with it um but yeah no this story. is a this is a natural progression though because even my thesis film i made at afi you know i kind of look at the poster my hair wasn't super green back then i just had like a little bit of darker emerald in my hair mm-hmm. it was mostly black um and you know the mostly my movie was kind of a pink palette but when I look at the poster of that thesis film, Kid Me Kabuki, it's like a poster that is all pink, uh, pink high heel stilettos, and then one green croc, you know? Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. said something about the main character of that movie. And I'm realizing pink and green has just, like, again, has always just been a combination that I love. Um, and it's naturally followed me through me as an artist building my looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and now is it now is it like a part of branding that's intentional? I think it's more like rather than like intentionally pushing it, it's more like, oh, it's naturally something that's mm-hmm. advantageous. You know, you're I leaning think- into it still. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, you know, especially I'll, I'll be honest with you, like even with colorful hair, some executives have, have mistaken me for other Asian women. Um, so I, I think it's actually sort like, of what, else, what other clues can I give you? Yeah. How many other green women do you know, bro? I don't know. I don't know. There aren't. I mean, no, look, <laughs> I, I can't even begin to tell you why that happens. You know, that's not my sure. business yeah, to yeah. analyze, but it does happen still. Bonkers. Bonkers. Yeah. Can I ask what you wear on set? What your director fit is? So, oh my goodness. Okay. You know, it's evolved because I would say in the beginning, even in the beginning of my like day one of Unseen, I would still, I was, I intentionally dress conservatively in the sense Mm -hmm. that like, you know, my hair is still colorful, but I'm wearing like all black, you know, Mm because I want to make sure I kind of like earn the crew's respect before I truly show my colors. Sure, sure. Um, but so yeah, day one, I was wearing all black, but by the time I knew that everybody thought, you know, I was a good fun time day, the last day of unseen, I was wearing a, um, mesh black sequin dress with like green, like sequin hands all over it. And Mm -hmm. I've started to, I've I've decided to make it a tradition that last day of production, if we've all had a good time, I'm going to dress up in something very impractical and glamorous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I do think that when you literally visually match your movies, it's mm-hmm. um, it's very helpful for executives. You know, when yeah, when yeah, when that. there's a certain need to fill, they know who to go to. I think that is a it is an advantage that when when you can actually be that way. But you know, I don't think you have to be as loud and as you know very like sure. bright as this. I think a lot of a lot of directors um, seem to have that. You know, I think the Daniels look like they did everything everywhere. You know, I think Spielberg looks like he did the Fablemans. Like they, they it all it all kind of starts to subtly make sense the more you build yeah. your portfolio. Let's talk about the movie though, because I think that it's, this is all leading towards this is your first feature. Again, lots of style. It's a Blum, Blumhouse film. You're leaning into genre. You're embracing the genre of it all. And literally, I'm like paused on a on a frame that's like, look, it's the forest, but it's green, and then your character is in purple, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a drone top down. Yeah. <laughs> So, so talk to us about how Blumhouse films kind of notoriously are built with a model of, it's a pipeline, right? Where they're trying to make really awesome movies and they've made a ton of really great ones, but they're intentionally low budget. And I think Jason Blum has gone on the record as saying that the re- he loves to have the creative freedom to do that, but it comes with limitations, right? Yeah. Um, and we're talking about multi-million dollar films. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah low it's budget low budget in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not... Um, a nights and weekends sort of project. But so you're still, so I imagine you're still sprinting. You're still not being able to get every single toy that you want. And I think that when Oren and I have been in those situations, it's really easy to just be like, okay, I know that the wall isn't green, but uh, yeah, I can make it work or yeah. whatever. Do you know what I mean? Or like we don't have enough light or we don't have enough time to light it the way we want it to or whatever. Right. And so all of the the things that, you have planned that are in your lookbook and your style guide that are going to make it feel stylized and make it feel Yoko kind of mm. slowly get sanded off. Right. Um, so talk to us about how you uh, maintain a, an aesthetic in a fast paced, relatively low budget environment. 
Yeah. And it, it, can we rewind even like before that, like I'd, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about like how you came up with the style, the visual style for this. Mm-hmm. And, and then. Yeah, you know, sure. That, that knowing, into, knowing what. I mean, you have 22 days to shoot. Yeah, and exactly. You yeah, have to shoot. Great. I think, didn't you have to shoot in a geographic area, a certain place? Yes, we, we, you know, they, they made eight of these different movies. I was one of eight and they were all shooting in New Orleans, Louisiana, mm-hmm. um, you know, one after the other, kind of almost like a TV show with episodes. So they had a machine running and I was plopped into it to make my own movie within that machine. Yeah. You know, what's funny though, like 22 days to me as somebody who came from, you know, you know, sure. nights and weekends shoots and TV shows that's, you know, seven days for an episode. I was like, 22 days wow um so you know having run the gauntlet so much in indies it's like that if it didn't feel too restrictive to me um it was all it was definitely intimidating in the sense that like it's 22 days but this script is dense you know Mm -hmm. like there's a nine page scene with like so many little tiny bits of beats of like you know she falls down she breaks her glasses he's you know doing this he's doing that it's very dense and on top of that we pretty much had to shoot the movie twice because we were shooting one girl's coverage, you know, over two weeks and then going back to the same scenes to do the other girl's coverage at a different location. Um, so amidst, you know, knowing that it was going to be tight. Um, Sorry, can, can you clarify that? What, what, under what, why was that the case? Well, so, yeah, we shot Midori's side of the phone call, um, which was all forest locations. So we had to shoot her out and shoot all of that before we went to the gas station and shot all of Jolene's side. Should we give the the premise real quick? Because I think it'll be really helpful. Yeah. For listeners. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's yeah. a very, there's a, a plot driven reason why you couldn't shoot the conversations in, in the same space, basically. Absolutely. Okay. So the movie Unseen is a like survival thriller that's about one woman who is in a gas station and she's having a hard time in her life, depressed, kind of having a horrible boss. But then one day she gets a call from a stranger. Uh, this stranger happens to be somebody who was kidnapped by her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, um, and who is trying to murder her. She has fought back, but then in order to escape, she has accidentally broken her glasses. So she's incredibly nearsighted. She can't see anything. So in order to survive, she has made a phone call and it happens to connect to somebody who accidentally had called her previously. So essentially it's these two strangers who are across the country. One girl's in Michigan, one girl's in Florida. And um, the girl in Florida is having to navigate this girl in Michigan to survival through a, a video call. And that is why these are people who are never in the same shot together mm-hmm. on location. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So that makes sense. So like, even though you're getting, say, the the dialogue from the person who's in Michigan guiding the person through the forest, you can't, say, for instance, cross cover any of that. Or yeah. I'm curious, are you, is all of the phone screens, are they all green then? Is that how you're shooting that or... So Is that there was any one of the uh, move or no? Yeah, we actually attempted a practical phone oh. um, pipeline, yeah. which did not work out. So yeah. you know, bless our hearts, we tried, but yeah. at the end of the day, it was just too quick of a turnaround to actually pick the takes of that mm-hmm. we would actually want to shoot practically. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it just ended up being green screened, and you know, we yeah. learned a lesson. Sure. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And so yeah. I guess based on that answer, you decided to shoot the girl who's being chased by her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend first. Yes, we shot uh, Midori Francis, uh, Emily's side in the forest first. Um, but uh, Jolene, who plays Sam, um, flew out, even though she wasn't actually going to be shot herself, and did all of the scenes off camera with her. So, um, awesome. yeah, so the schedule yeah. really required us to, again, shoot the same scene they just did again mm-hmm. later with coverage mm-hmm. in a completely different location completely different lighting you know completely different everything so it was like shooting and, double the movie and, and then, you get your full sag rate right when you fly out to do that oh you know what that was that was uh, somebody else's job too uh, <laughs> I, I honestly have no idea yeah. well there's this thing i feel like you always hear these stories where it's like oh this actor was so generous they came and they did their lines off camera even though they didn't need to be on set that day and i'm like uh yeah if i'm in sag and i can get paid to be on set not have to worry about what i look like and get three meals <laughs> a day i'm in i think um, it's a flat rate but don't quote me on that so i'm not quite oh, like sure. a weekly rate yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um but so yeah cool. i know 
Yeah, totally. But it ultimately that they both loved that process though. Like they really did, you know, we if if we were to develop one half of the movie without the other actress, mm-hmm. like they would have ended up with a scene that they weren't a part of collaborating on. Yeah. You know, so it was yeah. really pretty crucial. I, I love I love that as a as a philosophy and just thinking about the realities of like your poor actor, you know, reading opposite the AD being like, run, run, yes. look out. He's coming yeah. or, or whatever. Worse, the script supervisor. Yeah. And they're just yeah. pronouncing everything incorrectly. Yeah. yeah. It made a huge difference for both of their performances. Like it really was crucial. And the fact that, you know, they were both there from the very beginning to the very end also allowed the actors to build a really like sincere oh, cool. relationship and friendship, which um, I think only, you know, helped the chemistry on screen. Yeah. I love that yeah. so much. What's, what's funny to me about this is that this is like, the premise sounds like so perfect for like a a low budget concept. It's got yeah. thriller elements. It's really fun. And it's like, yeah, it's basically one person in the woods and then one person in a gas station. Yeah, it couldn't be simpler. And then as soon as you start to think about how you actually pull it off, it yeah. just becomes so much more complicated. <laughs> Yes, it really did. <laughs> Were there other aspects of the film that surprised you in their complexity? You know, um, I think that a big learning experience for me on this movie was actually VFX. Um, and when, you know, I think you asked earlier, like, you know, what was the thing that Yoko wanted that, you know, ca- had to start getting carved down a little bit? Mm-hmm. What was amazing about production was that I actually felt like you know the the producers really understood that this was a challenging movie and really had needed a lot of resources as far as you know all the you know different elements we're shooting so many things um and i was about able to kind of get those fun extra toys you know like we definitely had to negotiate some things you know oh we're not going to do this so we can do this instead but um you know especially that kind of cliff scene that we got you know we got to have a crane at the edge of a cliff you know like that was a (laughs) wonderful you know exciting piece of toy you know tool that we could have um but when we got to post-production that's when i was like oh here are the limitations um Mm -hmm. because our movie so all the other movies pretty much maybe had like an average of 100 vfx shots but our movie had 300 so it was many many times over what you know this this particular you know pipeline was used to so that's when I started to feel the limitations of, oh, like it's not going to quite, it might not quite look like how I hoped. Mm-hmm. Did you do VFX on your TV show? So you've done five episodes of TV. Did you do them all before you shot this movie? Um, I did all, uh, I did four before I shot the movie, but as a TV director, you don't get to hang out around till mm-hmm. they do VFX. Um, that's completely on the showrunner and the producers. Um, I, Pretty much after in a TV show, I have to bounce after four days. You know, that's all that I get. So I watch the final product and realize what kind of VFX they did. Sure. You're like, oh, it looks nice. Do you, do you leave notes or do you say like, oh, I thought it would be cool if you do this or maybe fix this thing or this blink looks weird? I definitely leave intentions and I definitely leave them with references that I was using during production. But whether they actually get ingested and, you know, executed is completely, you know, something that's out of my hands. Um, right. You know, one thing I did was 50 States of Fright, which was very, you know, oh, right, right. heavy. That was my first like run at really, you know, that process. But and that was again, you know, that was a Sam Raimi show. Like, you know, he had mm-hmm. his people that that part was very smooth and amazing. Um this was a little different. <laughs> yeah. Is it, this... It, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I'm curious in terms of the 300 shots, though, um, what percentage of those are screen replacement phone shots versus... Yeah. It, the majority, it sounds like? Or? Oh, many. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. Many, many, yeah. many. But I think, again, the tediousness and the quantity mm-hmm. was kind of like, uh, bl- you know, kind of just blocking that pipeline. Yeah, you know, a it shot was is like, a shot is a shot, whether it's a, a monster a or... A phone if you've got 300 of them you know it just creates problems for sure and it's yeah. not just screen replacement they had to add the cracks in the phone for every mm-hmm. single shot where the phone was so again layers of you know difficulties well so i'm curious so you get this script it's the concept is based on a phone call with a camera what goes on in yoko's brain when you think like okay how do we <laughs> how am i what am i going to do with my camera to film this like, am I going to film one side with an iPhone? Am I like, can you just talk to us about the approach of like how you plan out what it's going to look like? Is like, 
handheld on the crazy side, you know, on the murder side yeah. and dollies on the gas station side. Like, like, just tell us a little bit about how you thought of it yeah. and both from like a creative point of view and also from a practical production point of view. Yeah. You know, when I first read the script, my, I felt this sense of dread of like, oh my goodness, <laughs> if we don't do this right, this movie could be really boring and tedious to watch. Just two people talking on FaceTime the whole time. Like if, if it was just like literally a close up of their face and an over on the phone, mm-hmm. I would, I would be bored out of my mind. Um, so from the very beginning, you know, when I was even pitching to be the director of the, uh, of the script, um, I was like, uh, you know, I, I had a philosophy going in of this is incredibly emotionally subjective. You know, we will use every tool in our in our in our pocket cinematically to make sure that you are entertained and this is a spectacle. Um, you know, we are going to start yes with dollies and like kind of more like uh, you know steady moves in the beginning with the gas station, but we're going to start right away with you know intensity on Emily's side where she's you know. This first scene in the cabin with her and you know uh, her ex boyfriend is almost like the finale of another movie. Like we start with a with a scene that could have been you know uh, towards the end of a movie, not the beginning of the movie. So, um, yeah, from the beginning, I was like, okay, these two worlds are going to start off contrasted, even though they're intercut. You know, one is high intensity, one is dread, but you know, but steady. And then as the two women actually talk and meet on the phone that's when the cinematic universe of both of their sides is going to start to merge and become unified and be one. So that's where the split screen was going to become super duper important. Um, but, you know, I didn't want to just do, again, just a split screen. I wanted to be as creative as possible to, you know, intermingle and interact the two sides of the split screens. So we, again, kind of, you know, symbolically reference their, their developing emotional connection. And were you worried at all that, like one side of the split screen wouldn't would be hard to like if you're going handheld on one side and you know Mm -hmm. uh, dollies on the other side like how much were you thinking about like actual like camera movement and all those things in terms of how they intercut how they would look next to each other and how it works with the phone stuff so my DP, uh, Fetty Verardi, and I definitely talked a lot about, again, like when we see these two sides of the world together, we ha- it has to make sense as one shot, mm-hmm. right? It's not two shots, it's one shot. So there's one particular, you know, scene where the two women are, you know, it's, it's one of the moments where they're actually having a conversation and trying to get, you know, getting to know each other. And that's a scene where, you know, one woman is sitting and one person is walking. But we were like, how can we make the cameras feel similar, even though they're doing mm-hmm. physically completely different things? Um, so it really was about in a very steady, steady cam that was following, you know, leading the girl who was walking. And then, you know, the other woman was also a steady cam, but she was staying still and just keeping them at, exa- you know, at the same in the same places in their frames. And then in the moment when they were, you know, ha- uh, actually emotionally connecting, instead of being frontal, both, you know, cameras would come simultaneously come to the sides of both of the characters so that they were then facing each other. Um, so we definitely were designing things to feel, uh, you know, orchestrated to be one. And we're very cognizant that, you know, we don't want it to be like two different movies just like shoved mm-hmm. into each other and, you know, be a mess. That's awesome. I love it. And I, I, I mean, it. it takes a lot of planning to get yes. the timing right on all that stuff, right? Yeah, that particular shot really too. Like we, we, you know, that's the kind of stuff, again, you pre-plan so much and you make sure the AD knows we need extra time for that. It's a special thing. And that's one where I, as a director, was like a little scared of that, you know, because <laughs> we are doing like a whole scene in a one shot where, you know, each camera has to have to have the same move. It's exactly the same time. So I was the kind of was like, I have to get coverage to make sure like, you know, the editor can cut if the producers give a note that this is going too slow. Like I was doing a little bit of ass covering because I am used to television. Um, But it was actually really cool that, you know, uh, once we got to the second half of that scene, we had already shot the first half. um, You know, we were running out of time. Like it was, we were really running out of time. And I was like, oh my God. I'm not going to be able to cover my ass. All I'm going to have is this one shot. Um, but my producer, Alex, was actually like really supportive for us to all commit that this is going to be a one shot. We're not going to cover our asses. We're going to commit to this working and just like get this right um, and spend time doing that instead of spending mm-hmm. time getting and a bunch of extra shots. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't that make you, that you feel like? yeah. Yeah, so good to have someone 
that is not saying, yeah, maybe just get a close up. Yeah, maybe yeah. just grab an insert. I, we love it. We love it. Just like uh, <laughs> pan pan over and grab that rock or, you know, insert of the phone I, just for safety. Yeah. And I just yeah. love it when people are fighting for the sake of art, not to sound too, mm-hmm. <laughs> too, you know, uh, too fancy, but instead of, yeah, instead of coming from a place of fear, which is where I feel like a lot of, you know, people in production and the people that have to answer the questions of why we got this come from. And so it's so nice when everyone comes together. A thing that I've been thinking about a lot is that when you're in a situation where a producer or a creative director or somebody is regularly second guessing you, and at a certain point, you end up second guessing yourself, right? So, like Yoko, when you were telling the story about how you're committing to the oneer, there's a part of me that was like, "Oh boy, I hope she's right." You know what I mean? Like, like when you're when you're backed up like that, but you yeah. still have that baggage, you know, all of a sudden there's a little bit of a panic of like, "Well, I I'm pretty sure I'm right. I think this mm-hmm. is a good idea. What if I'm wrong?" Right? Mm-hmm. And it, that's informed by the you know the a decade of producers being like, well, I'll just get the coverage. Do you right. know what I Previous mean? Previous experiences. Previous yeah. experiences. I'm re- I'm processing it in real time with you, you two. So, yeah. <laughs> but oh, yeah. so do you, did you ever have a moment where you were like, boy, I hope this works. Or did you feel confident that it was going to work the whole way through? Oh, oh my goodness. No, I definitely felt, I hope this works. Cause <laughs> I, I definitely, cause I'm somebody who doesn't like to lock in the editors. Like I do uh-huh. like to give them options, sure. you know? Um, so yeah, I, I was, I was definitely afraid. Like I just didn't want to lock ourselves into a corner and then be in the edit room and be like, mm-hmm. shoot, I didn't give us an out and this right. isn't working. Right. Um, you know, I think at the time, you know, now, now I'm like, you know, I love it. And I'm like, oh, of course, like the actors are amazing. And like, the, it does the, the performance synced up so well. But like, yeah, at the time, I was like, what if, what if the emotional beats don't work out? What if their responses mm-hmm. to each other actually don't work? And I have to cut it up to actually make the to or, or I just didn't think of something. I yeah. was, you know, like, the beats just match up for some reason I couldn't think of. Yeah. I yeah, do think in a like, feature you have a little bit more leeway because you're not hitting sure. this exact yeah, time it's not limit. You're 30 not, seconds specifically yeah, or 22 and a half or 21 and a half or whatever. And you yeah. say, yeah, this scene, you know, I thought it would be three minutes, but it's four minutes and that's fine. And we'll yeah. get that time back somewhere else. Definitely. I definitely think that in a feature, uh, I, I mean, as a director, it's again, like I love collaborating with showrunners, but there's always a fear that I'm not, that I'm going to disappoint them, mm-hmm. <laughs> that I'm not giving them everything they need. So I, I do feel like a collector of options, especially on a TV show. But in a movie, I, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, the whole movie has to work and I do have to please a lot of people who are paying for it. But these small creative moments are up to me. Um, and, and I'm not going to disappoint anybody more than I'll disappoint myself creatively. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely something you have to think about. And, um, uh, you, I feel like I got lucky with that scene, but you know, sometimes you have to step back and be like, no, we designed it. We worked hard mm-hmm. and that's why it This works. is the plan. We get, we're going to stick to it. Yeah. 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 I love that. Um, so, so we talked about the, the, I love the philosophy, especially the idea of it being one shot, not two shot when you're living in these split screens. Um, can we talk a little bit about the practicalities of executing the kind of grandiose ideas, right? Because like, I think it's one thing to say, oh, I want to make sure that the spectacle, you know, that it's spectacular immediately and that we're, uh, we're we've got the energy is coursing through this film and that there's contrast mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, and that's super fun to say in a pitch, but then what do you specifically actually do to, to pull that off? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, the first thing I did was to make sure that the camera had something spectacular to look at. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the forest is the forest. What can you do? But when it came to that gas station where the character Sam is, I was like, this isn't going to be a normal dingy gas station. This is going to be... Pepto Bismol, you know, pink and like mm-hmm. Mountain Dew mm-hmm. green. We're going to mm-hmm. embrace the kitsch. It's going to have neon lights in there. Like, show me something to look at and make mm-hmm. the audience go like, oh my gosh. And just like, 
feast for their eyes, right? Yeah, so I love that. that Did a- you have a reference of a location that you liked from another movie or in real life or anything? You know what's funny? Um, my, my like me getting um the confidence to to make this location be a bold like iconic statement came from me watching like Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching it kind of during prep and then realized like, man, someday I wish I could make something so like a location so iconic like this, you know, diner. And then I was like, wait a minute, like, I'm literally about to make a movie. Like, why am I being scared to make yeah. this the moment? Um, you know what's so funny, though, is that that diner, is that Johnny's on La Brea and Wilshire? I think so. I'm, I'm pretty certain it is. And yeah. I think of that, it's a great diner, but like, there, there's a handful of like stock uh, locations that I feel like have been overshot and like, yeah. no disrespect, but I think Johnny's might be one of them. Is, and I was like, I was just it's like, some oh, David man. Lynch film too, right? It's in it's a, a ton of stuff and a ton of music videos in particular. And right. I was like, oh man, it's so smart to like add color to your your gas station because we've seen the Joshua Tree, Bakersfield, yeah. Acton, standing movie set gas station a million times, especially yeah. especially at like a student film do you know what i mean if you go to a 100%. usc or afi student thesis yeah, right. i guarantee there's the the same gas station is there every couple of years at bare minimum you know what i mean so yes like, I, and i love the the color idea for sure yeah and like they don't really quite have the budget to like you know do original production design in sure. the locations right yeah. so it's like it just all looks kind of the same generic it looks pretty good station, yeah. it looks pretty good and there's like a maybe there's a diner part too and like yeah. you know, like that's the, a situation where a young producer is like, we got everything we need. Gas station yeah. scenes covered. So yeah. we'll put it elsewhere. And then it looks like everything we've seen. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think, worked on those movies. It was so fun. Yeah. And I think <laughs> it's like, I think, you know, I, it, it's, it is a process to get yourself out of the same mentality mm-hmm. that you had back then as a film student of like, I got to work with what I have and I can't mm-hmm. really ask for more or else I'm being an asshole. Um, I think I had to like actively step out of that mentality and go like, no, I can ask for this. I can push the boundaries of the aesthetic of this location. And if they're going to say no, they'll say no and I'll work with it. But like, it's my job to ask. Um, so that was the first thing to do is to make that gas station a little out of this world. Um, but then as far as to push the boundary, like the intensity of it, um, it was making sure my DP and my editor, you know, knew the techniques that we were going to use to, to do that. You know, mm-hmm. I got my, you know, my, my DP Freddy is amazing. And like his aesthetic is again, very like more classic, right? Like if he could do anything, I think he'd be doing more like Deacon's kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'm here being like, we're going to go crazy. You're going to give me whip zooms. We're going to give me like, you know, all kinds of crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to give me like, you know, wide lens, close up low. Like you're going to give me some crazy shit. That's what I'm talking he's about. Like, he's like, let's do it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I get it. He, he understood the assignment. Um, so that was number one to make sure that we're generating raw footage that had Sometimes. that energy. <laughs> Sometimes I tell people I want it to look like a Capri Sun commercial from the 90s. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like just, just like kind of cracked out. 18 <laughs> mil, super close up. Like like yep. if Terry Gilliam was going to do a, a Gushers commercial. Yep. A hundred percent. And like I was pulling references, you know, again, not from like classic horror films or classic thriller. Like I was getting taking like shot references from like Boondock Saints. Yeah, you know, yeah. like I just yeah, wanted yeah. something with some really just audacity to the style and just operatic grandness. Um, so showing my DP those references was really important. That's cool. Um, I, I love I love you calling out the operatic grandness as well mm, because yeah. I think it's it's easy to to miss the scale of it, right? Yeah. I, at least I personally have done that plenty of times, and that yeah. I think adding. So what what how, in what ways did you make it? operatic did you make it um larger than life well you know it's the kind of thing where again i read the script and i was like if we take this concept too seriously it's it's gonna be a hard sell like Mm -hmm. this has to be fun this like and the fun is gonna come from the villains and the locations again being larger than life Mm -hmm. um i think missy pyle was a huge asset and bringing this operaticness um the the larger than life you know uh intensity of her anger and her mm-hmm. uh, almost absurd like you know insult comedy that she brought into her terrorizing mm-hmm. of of Sam um 
I think she was a really big asset to making that tonal, you know, ad. Um, yeah, I think, you know, especially like the introduction of her husband and stuff, you know, I bought and brought in like classical music and, you know, made sure that, you know, I, I kind of like honed in on what that character is on the comedy of and, and of that character was, you know, he, he enters with like a little sailor hat on, mm-hmm. you know, and his like little sailor boots. Um, and then, but still making sure that, I don't trivialize the co- sure. you know them with the sure. comedy. I still make sure that they are a threat, like a mortal threat to the protagonists. Yeah, love it. Awesome. So fun. It makes yeah. me think of also like like Baz Luhrmann is probably yes. a nice tonal comp. Yeah, yeah love yeah. me, love me the Luhrmann. Uh, yeah, yeah. very much an inspiration to me. And sure. uh, I also take a lot from Edgar Wright as far as like sure. you know visual comedy and editing and match cuts and all that stuff. So. Yeah. Do you have any sort of philosophy in terms of when you're making your shot list? Do you, well, do you make shot lists on a, a feature like this? I do. I shot listed pretty hardcore um, to a degree where my like AD like made fun of me for being so prepared. Like, I don't know, not, you know, in jest, he's amazing. I love him. He was like our set dad. But like after we wrapped, he was like, you know, the directors usually have the you know dp like you know make the shot list and it's usually like half the length of what you gave Who us and I'm says like, that though i've heard people <laughs> say that before but i've never never in my life look we've talked to a director a week for years yeah i i don't think i know a single person who would have a dp make a shot list that's crazy i mean a lot of people make the shot list with the dp sure like, alongside sure. them yeah but yeah. not oh what what are we shooting tonight though I guess Spielberg just will walk into, you know, there's, there are the directors that will walk into the room and just kind of say, okay, let's start here. But they're still calling the shots though. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. Like no one would ever hand me a list and be like, this is what we're shooting. I think what my AD was referencing was that like the DP often act does the actual assembly, you Uh know, and like does the actual, like, you know, Excel sheet with the images and what it's called and stuff. Whereas I, I was generating the actual list and like adding the details of everything that I wanted into it. And then like the morning of sending it to everybody, which was then distributed to the whole crew. Gotcha. And did you have storyboards? Sometimes my list could be sloppy. A little, there's a little bit like medium on could be a little more clear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry. You you had the the storyboards. Oh yeah. Well, my shot lists usually just say, Master shot and then coverage and then that's it. And I just hand that to DP and go take a nap. Uh, do uh, yeah? Do did you storyboard action scenes or how do you do that? What's your process for that? Yes, um, I was able to get a professional yeah storyboarder to communi- uh, to c- collaborate with to draw out three key you know scenes that had a lot of different elements in it as far as stunts go and the effects go so that you know for everybody to get on the same page um i needed a a real illustrator's actual you know skills Mm -hmm. um but outside of those scenes i definitely you know did my own little doodles just uh for me storyboards are a shorthand for like the, the the pacing i need on set Cause like reading when am I, when my when I'm in set brain, reading lines is almost like I have a concussion, like reading text that says like medium shot on Emily, mm-hmm. low angle, 35 millimeter. It just doesn't register when I see words. But if mm-hmm. I see a little, you know, thumbnail of a doodle I've done, I know exactly what that is, you know? Oh yeah. I've been on set so many times. We're about to wrap or move on. And then AD comes and they're like, uh, hey, Orin, we didn't get this shot, shot 107B, and I'll look at it, and it'll say something like, yeah, uh, medium over on Jessica. And I'll be like, yeah. I have no idea what that, where, what that just, supposed to yeah, be? medium over who, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I think I'm like that, too. And just the process of writing those things down is what hopefully cements them in our brain. But I think yeah. I've heard, my guess is most directors that are you know, hardworking directors that, you know, care about what they're making, don't look at shot lists on set because they've already gone through it in their brains. They've so many internalized times. it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, but I think, you know, the, the, even a thumbnail is nice to communicate to a crew in a different way. I think to Yoko's point of like seeing text is one thing, but like seeing the image just makes things a little bit clearer for people, even if it's chicken scratch. How, yeah. are, how are you as an illustrator? Are you are you a, on the scale of 
you know, kindergartner to a storyboard artist, where do you think you land? I think I'm like a cute middle schooler, you know, okay. like doodling yeah, yeah. kittens mm-hmm. and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It functions. It functions. I, it, it, um, but, you know, it's like cute little you know, hands that don't look like hands. You know, they, mm-hmm, they definitely mm-hmm. look like um, doodles. But, uh, you know, and sometimes also like when I'm really need like an actual like angle, like a low angle where you see somebody's like, you know. Mm-hmm. I take like a doll and I take photos and I just yeah. like put those in. Yeah. 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 I, I, I've over the years have become more into photo boards, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But on this last know, job, people were like, I don't know what, like they, we ended up tracing them and like drawing everything in because they were like, you can't, we don't know oh. what's going on here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at AFI, I really fell in love with the video storyboard, which is pretty much just like, you know, uh, shooting the whole movie already. And, sure. that, and I know Edgar Wright does a lot of that, um, especially for his like gags. But uh, and I would love to someday have the resources to be able to pre-res like that, you know, mm-hmm. in in these features. This definitely had no time for that. But um, sure. Sure. complicated stuff would be great to do actual video storyboards. I'm curious, before we wrap up, just because you've had all this TV experience and you did the Sam Raimi show. And obviously you had this, uh, this big thesis film at AFI, everything else you've done. How does shooting a feature for Blumhouse compare to directing TV? Because obviously it's different than if you wrote and directed and financed your own film where you kind of call all the shots. Uh, but it's different than TV where your hand you're in the, you're coming into some, into a world that other people have already created. Yeah. So how how was that experience and what did you like and not like about it? Yeah, you know, I again coming up post grad school, I studied a lot of, you know, Blumhouse in the sense of like doability, right? They had a whole Hulu, you know, made for mm-hmm. streaming, you know, horror series of movies that were, you know, very contained. So me and my producers would always just kind of like studied how those are written, like how the good ones function and you know, all that stuff. And so I was always familiar with it you know, pretty intrinsically. And then I'm um, finally coming to actually be one of those directors doing one of those movies. Um, I was very familiar again with what the assignment was going to be. Um, but as far as collaborating with Blumhouse and the executives there and what their expectations were. Um, yeah. I, I think they just really knew who I was. Like, I think they just, they, they saw my previous work. They heard my pitch and, from the very beginning, um, we were making the same movie. So there wasn't any conflict of like, you know, them telling me like, you have to do this more. You have to be, it has to be more this, it has to be more that. Like, in fact, I think they understood me so well that, you know, especially in post-production, they were giving me notes that were really helpful that were pushing my style even more than, you know, we may have executed it in the first, you know, director's cut. So yeah, pretty positive. And did you feel... Like you were the one that could say, let's move on or let's change this line of dialogue or let's yeah. make the gas station green. Definitely. Yeah. And everybody was like, okay, that sounds fun. Um, it was pretty supportive. I haven't directed TV, so I don't really know. But I, I always ha- I'm under the impression that you couldn't just change a line of dialogue and say, let's call oh, yeah. it let's call it a day. Like you need to get oh, that yes. type of stuff approved. I get everything. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, if, if an actor has a little tiny switch they want to make, maybe I'll get a take of that, but we're always shooting what's written first. Um, and then doing little alts in between that I don't necessarily need to get, you know, permission for, but as far as, yeah, like what the color of the gas station is like, is not my, is ultimately kind of not my job almost like I will, I can give suggestions, but, and if they're all, you know, great suggestions I've added to the quality and the value of the, of the show. But, um, Ultimately, it is the showrunner's decision of what they mm-hmm. want to do, um, depending on the show, though. You know, it, it varies. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, creatively, the buck really stopped with me on on the feature. And, um, yeah, what uh, again, post-production was really where we, we interacted most with the studio. Um, but production, I, I really did have free reign. Out of curiosity, when there were things that you wanted to change, or even, for instance, the the green gas station or, or or something like that, were you running it up the chain? Like, what? How does approvals work for that? You know, 
Yeah. Um, that particular thing with the gas station and making it ridiculous, I think I had already pitched it. You know, okay, like when I was great. pitching to be the director, great. I was like, I'm going to push the style. I want I want a bunch of colors. You know, mm-hmm. I, I set their expectation when they were hiring me. So mm-hmm. that made it so I did not have to run everything up the chain. And it wasn't a huge, you know, expectation mm-hmm. change from what the, you know I, I had told right. them yeah 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 you were already all on the same page that that's that makes complete sense yeah yeah i yeah yeah no because you could i could imagine being like yeah green gas station so sick right guys and they're like <laughs> whoa <laughs> what what yeah um, <laughs> yeah i think the key is really setting the expectations in the very beginning yeah. and that that solves so many problems for later yeah i wonder if you set the expectations to be super crazy and then deliver something that's not that crazy if people are they're like ah oh. disappointed well yeah. to be honest i mean not you know they weren't disappointed but there was post input post production they definitely gave the note like let's push even more crazy um Mm -hmm. split screens um some of the kind of more fragmented like fractured split screens came from a collaboration of me the editor michael block and the you know yeah blumhouse executives everybody kind of Mm -hmm. giving notes being like let's push this further so um yeah i had a little bit of that i feel like I, i always say when an idea is really good you can tell because other people start pitching on it right yeah. so like, they're like oh i get this what if you know they they can plus it or like bring their own personal anecdotes or yeah. stories to it that's when that's when you know it's really kind of no it's gonna awesome. work yeah. yeah they were yes ending for sure well so what's what's next yoko are you into the feature thing are you more into getting back into some more tv are you making to make any more of your I... own things I have fallen in love. I mean, I always, always kind of knew this was my format, but the ability to, you know, begin and end a story in a feature mm-hmm. is um, incredibly uh, attractive to me. Because to me, I design for an arc, right? I think as a director, you're designing for the arc of a story and, and that kind of, you know, beginning and end allows me to... Um, make something that's more distinct. And so I really want to keep doing that. My next goal absolutely is like a theatrically released feature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got, I got big dreams, uh, you know, up in the sky of someday doing like superhero villain, super villain, you know, prequel kind of movies for big studios. But I think the next thing, my first theatrical, I hope is another, you know, horror film, something that's, you know, me- glamorous meeting the dark world. I want to make a horror film in the uh, fashion world. so. I got a bunch of different scripts going and collaborations going with writers right now and you know, also reading other scripts. So I don't know exactly what's going to be my next thing. You never know what's going to hit, but I have, I have some, uh, yeah, specific goals. Some irons in the fire. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, uh, I hope you'll come back for that next one. Me yeah. too. I hope that's sooner than later. Yeah. Yes. Us too. We need a we need a guest. We'll slot you in, so you just have to make a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on, let me oh, put my yeah. spreadsheet, and we'll just kind of we'll just kind of pencil it in. Love it. Where can people keep track of all of your cool projects? What's the best way to stay in the world of Yoko? Yes, my Instagram. Uh, you can find me at for Yoko F O U R Y O K O, like the uh, infamous b- beverage from the you know two thousands for Loco. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can find me on TikTok at Director Yoko. Those are the those are the main places. And you're pretty pretty active on TikTok, right? People should definitely check you out. You know, it's funny when I'm actually working. There's no TikTok going on. So sure. like if I'm sure. active on TikTok, it means I'm unemployed. So yeah. you can really keep track of what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey everyone, my movie's gonna come out. I turned in my edit and I can't wait. That's it. But yes, I like to have fun on TikTok. I like to use it as a place to, you know, for me to teach everything that I can to people who don't necessarily, you know, have the capacity to to reach film schools or, you know, afford it. So I like to answer questions and give as much as I can on that platform. Do you have a minute to hang out and endorse with us? Of course, I would love to. Unpaid endorsements. I'm working on this show for Audible, and we are working on our outline that we have to present to them. And one of the things that was recommended to us by our partners at Temple Hill was to put the outline in a deck to really present it, like pitch a story, even though it's an audio story, pitch it with images and 
do all these, uh, you, you know, almost like you would pitch a movie, except we're mm-hmm. pitching a, a, an audio show. And so everyone knows about AI being like this thing that everyone is worried about and scared about, but also using and trying to figure out how to use it. So I feel like I'm trying to gather a list of ways you can use AI in an easy way. I used it for this treatment in two ways. One is is pretty obvious. I needed a cover image. Our The company we're working with, Temple Hill, they made the Twilight movies. And there has been some some talk about how our story has some similarities to Twilight. And he was pitching, oh, what if we do a kind of a cover that's similar to the Twilight cover, except, you know, in Twilight, it's these two hands holding an apple. But in our story, there's a scene where this girl holds this beetle and it comes to life and starts flying like a rhino beetle so i used mid journey to create the cover for me and it's pretty good definitely good enough for a deck for a pitch deck i know matt you've used ai a lot uh and used dolly but the mid journey stuff mid journey is better yeah yeah. it's pretty awesome especially if you have kind of an abstract thing that the problem that i ran into is it's really bad at fingers so having two hands my hands have like forty thousand fingers on them but you don't really notice them this, this is my hack for that, actually, is that I think that mid-journey is good for backgrounds, right? Like if you need a specific environment, oh, we need to be in an incredible mm. cave or whatever. And I think maybe, Orin, to your point, like the surreal sort of something that's not especially photoshoppable, but then add your people mm-hmm. through like find like models Photoshop. and then Photoshop them in. Yeah, yeah. So like because like there's a lot of great uh, free sites like Pexels or Unsplash or places like that that have great looking models. And, you know, maybe the backgrounds are a little weird or something like that. So if you can combine the two, that that has been, I think, relatively successful. So that was useful. And the other thing that's super useful is one of the episodes, our main character, Nikki, someone leaves her this list that has names, you know, five names on it. And she's the fourth name and it just says you're next. She lives in Rhode Island and she's a teenager. And so I just went to chat GPT and I said, can you just give me a list of 10 teenage girls that live in Rhode Island? First and last names, uh, kind of in the style of Stephen King, but don't copy any specific mm-hmm. names just in that style. And it gave me a bunch of different lists. So little wow. things like that where, you know, my, the, my partner, Julie, will spend days just like figuring out names and things for characters. And I think that's cool. But also, if you want to just generate a bunch of ideas real quick that are more scenery than they are plot, you know, or character, mm-hmm. I, 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 that's Ooh. those are two things that I've used AI for in the last day that I found kind of useful. Yoko, what's going on in Greenland? You know, my Greenland would like to give an unpaid endorsement to a company that I used recently utilized for a in-person event. Yeah, you know, I, I have never ordered my own like step and repeat, mm. um, you know, those backgrounds that you take yeah. photos in front of. And I just kind of had my own little, you know, like, Google, again, Google in session of trying to find what company to use and stuff. But I ended up finding a company, um, you know, that was really, you know, awesome to work with. They're a really small company that, you know, is is here in L.A. called Event Step and Repeat, you know, very <laughs> memorable name. Um, but they're very communicative. They're really helpful. They're really, you know, accessible on the phone to kind of help me pick the size and what kind of fabric and stuff. But then, you know, I really, I, I really, I really fell in love with them when I went to pick up the seven repeat and the stand. And it's really just like this little room with these huge printers and three guys just like printing a bunch of backgrounds. And it just felt like, oh, wow, how accessible, you know, like it's not this like big corporate thing going on. I felt like a very, you know, local business making step and repeats for you know hollywood events and such so i really yeah. liked them and definitely want to use them again so event step and repeat.com la company it doesn't look that expensive right you can get for two hundred dollars three hundred dollars yeah wow. i was comparing all of the different companies and this was the most affordable and they give you a stand um so wow yeah i really like them what was Man. your yeah what, what did you have printed so um, for the unseen advanced screening, um, Gold House uh, sponsored us getting a like photo opportunity. So um, you know they're an East Coast company, so uh, I kind of st- I kind of manage the actual you know nitty gritty of ordering it and kind of like taking care of the actual um, picking up and stuff. So I yeah uh, we we got the unseen logo with the Gold House and the Cape logo and these two different sponsors and um, got it. It was all pink, and I rented a green carpet. 
and kept it on theme. By the way, this company sells literal red carpets that you can roll yeah. out. You can oh, get yeah, four totally. foot by 20 foot red carpet for 240 bucks. Yeah. Wow. Again, very affordable, accessible, cool, nice dudes. Like, you know, let me use their bathroom. It was a good time. My unpaid endorsement is the graphic novel Ducks by Kate Beaton, who uh, kind of became famous doing like Tumblr web comics that are like about historical figures. She had a, a, a New York Times bestseller called Harka Vagrant, and they're all quite silly and kind of dismantle, you know, the seriousness of the way that we think of capital H history, you know. Mm. But Ducks is a memoir. It's kind of her first truly serious, quote unquote, uh, piece. And it's about... um her working in the oil sands to work off her student loans after going to art school, basically. And so it's a pretty it's a pretty big departure for her. Um, the other works, she's got a, a handful of great children's books, uh, The Princess and the Pony, which is now an Apple TV show, and uh, King Baby, a personal favorite in my household right now. So it's, it's really fascinating to see a really, frankly, pretty dark memoir from an artist who has done who's made their career in making serious things very silly. So uh, Ducks by Kate Beaton. Pretty great. Cool. I am absolutely going to read that. I, you know, I too have student loans from art school. So sure. Sounds yeah. very relatable. Well, Yoko, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Anyone has any questions for us, we're happy to forward them on to her. You can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. You can find us across all social media at Just Shoot It Pod. I'm on Twitter at Smitey Pileg and on Instagram at O Kaplan. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow across all social media, including Letterboxd. Oh, I should be watching more movies. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Thanks, Noah. And produced by Tyler Small. And you're listening to music provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.